Matters from EY. Hello and welcome to this podcast for non-executive directors from EY's UK Centre for Board Matters. I'm Justine Green and this time we'll look at the future of audit and its impact on boards. In the studio, we're joined by three guests, Sir Donald Bryden, chairman of the SAGE Group and the lead of the BEIS Independent Review into the Quality and Effectiveness of Audit. Hello. Hello. Paul Druckmann, chairman of the World Benchmarking Alliance and lead of the FRC's Review into the Future of Corporate Reporting. Hello, Paul. Hello, Justin. And Hal Ball, EY Managing Partner Audit, architect of the Embankment Project for Inclusive Capitalism and participant of the World Economic Forum's International Business Council. Hello, Hal. Hello, Justine. Now, Hal, briefly set the scene for us. Why are we talking about audit reform now? Well, this is a huge topic that's uh, front of mind for non-execs at the moment. Uh, We've got a number of reviews on the go. Uh, We've had Sir John Kingman's review of the regulator. We've had the CMA review of audit competition. We've had Sir Donald's own review of UK audit standards. And we're eagerly expecting Paul's review of the future of corporate reporting. And all of those together create a Uh, a huge, I was going to say maelstrom, but it's probably the wrong word of change that's uh, going to hit companies, investors and and auditors. So, Donald, starting with board governance, just outline for us your recommendations as to where directors should have more responsibilities. So my uh, recommendations were about improving the quality and effectiveness of audit. And there are a number of actors in that story, of which boards are only one. Uh, The report recommends a new profession of uh, corporate auditing. Uh, It uh, sets out principles for auditing to take place. And all of that is a service to the shareholders and other stakeholders. Directors have a role to play in that. So I recommend a whole series of things that directors can do to support the the process of auditing, which includes um, setting out very clearly a resilience statement, a public interest statement, Uh, providing opportunities for shareholders and others to input to the uh, process of establishing the emphases of audit in advance, clarifying uh, who pays the audit fee, clarifying for whom the audit is being conducted, and a whole raft of other things. Well, Paul, let's get your thoughts on this subject from a corporate reporting perspective. Do you agree? I do. I think um, the report, frankly, makes a lot of sense. Um, And certainly from the audit perspective, in terms of reporting the Uh, The idea that um, reporting is simply a compliance exercise, I think, has got stuck uh, over the years. And I think what the other reports that um, uh, Sir Donald has brought forward uh, actually takes us out of that compliance mindset and much more into the purpose and the interests of wider stakeholders. So, Sir Donald, how can company directors prepare themselves for these proposed changes? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is to Uh, make clear that they understand what the audit is for and who it's for. Uh, So I've set out a purpose of audit, which uh, is to help to restore confidence in uh, business and those who run it. Uh, They need to be clear uh, about the uh, areas where they themselves are making statements uh, and to be be sure that they're based and rooted in fact and not uh, just opinion. Uh, and in various instances create opportunities for those statements to be audited. And how? what do you think the challenges for directors will be to adapt to these recommendations? I think for directors, I'm particularly intrigued by, uh, you know, the forward-looking risk statement early in the process allows investors to engage with directors and for them to really think about the the scope of audit and what it means for them. 
Uh, I also like the public interest statement and the Section 172 uh, requirements and the challenge for directors to do that. And the onus is going to put on us as auditors to um, make comments about whether we observe the reality in the statement when we in practice. I think that will be an interesting dialogue between both auditors and directors. So I think there's a lot a lot of change coming um, for directors. Well, thank you for the moment. And next, we'll look at the future of corporate reporting. So, Paul, briefly, tell us what we can expect to see from your report and how this is going to dovetail into Sir Donald's review. OK, well, firstly, I think I ought to say that the, the corporate reporting report has not gone through the FRC board. Um, so what I'm telling you about is in the draft report, uh, which will come out as a consultation document. But I, I think, in essence, that, that there are two questions there. One is what's in the report, and secondly, how does it uh, fit in? Um, in terms of what's in the report, we, we talk about a reporting network rather than an annual report with specific elements to it. And the centre of the reporting network is what we're going to be calling a business report based on the strategic report that is now there. One of the key areas of the reporting network is that reports should be driven by objectives rather than necessarily by audiences, which is how it's uh, been done to date, either for shareholders or for wider stakeholders, etc. We also believe that um, the public interest report that uh, Sir Donald has come up with is actually a fundamental part of a new corporate uh, reporting system. And then the final aspect of the report is really about being the corporate reporting uh, regime in the UK having one singular regulatory framework, whereas at the moment it's very divisive. So on the public interest, it seems to be really important that we don't go into a long exercise to try and define the public interest, because we'll have as many views of that as there are people in the country. Uh, and what I recommended is that the public interest statement starts with the directors saying what they perceive their public interest for their company to be, uh, and then reporting against that. Well, I, I totally agree with that, because I think I think the danger is that, again, it becomes an exercise in um, following a, um, something that's rigid rather than actually what you believe in. Um, and then, of course, the three reports that you talked about before um, are very much alignment. What we've got to try and do is to see where are they placed and if it is actually up to the regulator to place them or if it's actually up to the company to place them. Or it could be up to the shareholders to ask for them. I was at a meeting of uh, investors the other day and they were saying, well, how can we persuade the FRC and the government to do this? And I said, no, what we need is somebody in the room to be Spartacus. Yeah. <laughs> Just stand up and do it. Yeah. Do you think they will? Yes. I, I, I thought it was very interesting, my meetings this last week and this week uh, with investors. Uh, they're, they're beginning to realise it's on their heads to do something about this. So, Donald, how much of a gear change is needed for boards in the UK to adopt better internal controls practices like companies in the US adhere to, for example? I don't think that the issue is about boards and companies. Again, to, to go back to where I began, the issue is about auditing and auditors uh, and directors play a part in that. But that's not the core. It's not the, the core issue about how directors report. It's how uh, people get assurance around the things that directors report that really matters here. So I don't think it's that big a revolution for, for, uh, for the directors. It's a much bigger revolution for auditors. 
What sort of assurance should a CEO or CFO get before making declarations that they're then going to put their neck on the line? So I used a phrase in the report about uh, auditors having an obligation to call out observed reality. Uh, and that's difficult because there isn't a standard for that. So this causes uh, auditors to have to use their judgment and use language that isn't boilerplated. So uh, the same will go for the CEO. The CEO will have to satisfy himself that he could look his board in the eye and say, I am satisfied that the controls are appropriate for this business today. Uh, he'll have to have uh, his team provide him with the evidence that, that is true. Uh, and the board will have to, will no doubt, question the CEO before it then collectively uh, supports that statement publicly. Uh, so that's a change and brings in part of what's in the American system. And Paul, what are the implications here on accountability and reporting? Well, I think it's probably easier said than done in some ways. Um, I, I totally agree it needs to be done. Uh, I, th I think the, the, the real element here is that reporting can influence behaviour. And I think that if companies, if CEOs and uh, CFOs are actually putting assurance on these things and signing off on them, then it does mean that they believe it because otherwise they are going to be putting their necks on the, the chopping block. So I think there is a, a it is that element of, um, you know, what you say you've actually got to do. Well, let me ask all three of you, how might such disclosures help improve employees' trust in business? Howell, let me start with you. Um, well, em employees in most businesses are uh, a really key stakeholder. So I think they'll have the first opportunity to respond to the risk statement. Uh, I'm sure uh, Paul's corporate reporting suite, if they're a major material stakeholder, will have a an employee report which will allow greater transparency so they'll understand better and clearer what's happening uh, in their interest. And finally, they're a member of the public. So they will have some interest in, in the public interest statement as well. So I think there's a number of areas for employees to look And do you think to. they will then feel more empowered? They'll certainly have more trust through the transparency. Uh, I think it's then up to the directors how they engage with this, that group as a stakeholder. I think the, the uh, requirement is for the board to explain how they've done that engagement and how they've listened to the views of that stakeholder. And, of course, we've now got a structure in which there is a mechanism for the employee's voice to be heard in the boardroom. Uh, so I think that we'll find that that channel becomes more and more important. And don't forget that trust is a big problem. You know, the Edelman Trust Barometer um, came out just before the um, Davos uh, meeting. And, you know, I, I was looking up that business in the UK is placed 23rd out of 26 countries that are surveyed. Yeah, and the, the the fact is that if we're not careful, business is seen as competent but not necessarily trustworthy. And we've got to make sure that we move the, the gauge. And I think um, assurance is a key component of that. Just as um, disclosure comes forward, we must make sure that that disclosure is seen to be credible by employees and others. But we do need to seem to move in the complete ecosystem. So we've got to bring all parts of that ecosystem together, whether it's the corporate reporting, what the director's responsibility is, and indeed what the auditors are responsible for. Yeah. But we can't wait for everybody to have agreed with yeah. everything. And an another round of open-ended consultation would be desperately bad news. I think that's what's coming, though, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying hard to uh, suggest that what we should have is a straw man that is then consulted on. So there's a f there are boundaries to what the consultation's about. 
to have another open-ended consultation would just be a gift to those who want to delay reform. Uh, I think your Spartacus challenge, Donald, sort of applies to everyone, to the boards, investors, I agree. directors, yeah. um, auditors and indeed the regulator. OK, well, in a moment, to conclude our conversation about audit reform, will the process be getting more complex? Board Matters. Howell, I think it's fair to say in recent times there's been more public interest in auditing. Do you see that as a continuing trend? Uh, sadly, yes. Uh, I don't think we're going to get away. In, and we were, we've obviously had Carillion, BHS and Thomas Cook, which have been very high-profile corporate collapses, which um, you know have been laid at the door of auditing, where, rightly or wrongly. Um, I sit there looking at coronavirus and thinking about what's going to happen now over the next six months, and we're going to have a lot of corporate stresses and strains, we are inevitably going to have some more high-profile failures over the next six months, which, again, will keep the focus and the spotlight on, on auditing. OK, well, Paul, with public interest in mind, should there be a change in the way individual reports are produced? Well, I, th- I think if you go back to what I said at the beginning about reports being produced with an objective rather than which one of which might be an audience, right, but there may be other objectives to reports, we've got to make sure that the reports are things that people can understand. To me, you know, the, the simple thing is if we're talking about boards... If the board does not understand the business report of this network of reports, something is fundamentally wrong. Because if they can't understand it, how could you possibly have be it be in the public interest? So, so, so Donald, in the interest of regaining public trust in audits, Dara asks, do we need a longer and more complex audit process? I don't think it's a question of length or complexity. I think it's a question of deciding what it is we're doing this for and then making sure that all the strands that are done uh, drive towards achieving that objective. And if that turns out that there's a longer report, well, so be it. If it's more informative, nobody will mind. If it's just longer because there's more arcane uh, compliance with rules, then they will mind. And Paul, how will shareholders and other stakeholders go about making sense of potentially a lot more information? Well, I think we've, we've always talked in, ter- in reporting. We've never used the term, but we push information to audiences and others. And actually what we live in in the technology-enabled world is the ability to pull information. And I think one of the principal drivers is around enabling technology. And we've got to get out of this mindset that you're going to read this report in a, in a, you know, as a document. Actually, it should be something that you pull the information that interests you through sophisticated so- uh, search tools and through other mediums. And I think we've got to get away from, from that, um, that pushed concept. And Howell, when it's gone wrong, how can a business regain public trust once it's been lost? You regain it by being very transparent about what you're trying to do. Uh, you need to deliver effectively, well, uh, and to what uh, you're asked to do. Um, I think some of the... At one level, if I wake up in the morning and can get very depressed and look at all the various reviews and, on the profession, I... I I feel like I shouldn't get out of bed. However, sometimes I'll jump out the other side of bed and feel very optimistic about uh, all the changes that are coming towards the the profession and the ecosystem. And that, as we look at the whole package, could really help businesses regain trust, both in terms of how they report to their stakeholders, but also how we auditors sort of um, do what's currently asked for us and indeed 
do what Sir Donald uh, has, has uh, envisioned for us to do to help close what's euphemistically called the expectation gap. Well, finally, to all three of you, let's sum up our discussion. What should boards be doing now in relation to the audit process? Sir Donald, let me start with you. They should be discussing the conclusions of my report and then implementing all the pieces that are in it that are their responsibility whilst encouraging their auditors to implement their part. Paul? I think the boards need to make sure that um, that they understand what assurance is and what it does for them, um, as well as understanding the what, what others say it should do. Uh, don't be boilerplate on their risk assessment. Uh, make it very focused. I think they should consider then whether their control system is adequate for the risks they face. Uh, and I think they should have an increase in regard to their public interest or Section 172 commitments for the broader stakeholders because I think that's important to the overall trust in the ecosystem. Well, thanks to all three of you for providing that valuable insight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As always, we have a limited time on our podcast and it is a big subject. So if you found our discussion useful and you'd like more information on this topic or perhaps you'd like more information about the UK Centre for Board Matters, you can email neds at uk.ey.com. That's neds at uk.ey.com. From me, Justine Green, Howell Ball, Paul Druckmann and Sir Donald Bryden, it's uh, thank you for listening and goodbye. Board Matters, back soon.